You're listening to My Cryptid Vacation, Episode 3. From the trees of mystery, our tiny blue car wound its way down California toward the town of Willow Creek. We passed by Elk Meadow, where, true to name, more elk than I've ever seen in one place grazed peacefully around an insurance building in the woods off the highway. Things got a bit drier and more rugged, while the roads got no less hazardous. On the road down, I came to realize that we really were in Bigfoot country. If online accounts are anything to go by, there's a huge concentration of Bigfoot evidence that's been collected from this part of California, like footprints and hair samples. Perhaps the most famous piece of Bigfoot evidence in existence, the Patterson-Gimlin film, was shot in this area. Just because it becomes important during the interview, I'll spend a few words contextualizing this film. afternoon of October 20th, 1967, as the story goes, friends Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were riding on horseback near Bluff Creek in Del Norte County when they saw something strange across the riverbank. Bluff Creek is, for what it's worth, a tributary of the Klamath River. The shaky film runs for about a minute and features what appears to be a female Bigfoot walking, noticing the men and then striding off into the woods. The action is reportedly preceded by Patterson dismounting his horse and approaching the creature on foot, while Gimlin armed himself in case of hostility. 954 frames in total, that on his deathbed Patterson never renounced or called a hoax. There is, as you can probably imagine, a lot of conversation still going on over this nearly half-a-century-old footage. To this day, Proponents of the footage will say the film has not been disproven, as in, there exists no evidence that the contents of the film were falsified, nor that the stories of the men who filmed it were fabricated. A lot can be done with modern video editing to stabilize and zoom in on what's actually happening, and I'd encourage listeners who don't know what I'm talking about to check it out, and honestly, read about what kind of objections are raised and how that discussion goes, because in the age of digital video, Analog film editing is kind of cool. Regardless, Northern California stretched on in front of us. Bigfoot country awaits. Looking for information about this museum online, I found that it goes by a few names. To put any discrepancies to rest, I'll point out that the name on the front of the building is the Willow Creek China Flat Museum, but I'm going to call it the Willow Creek Museum because that's technically the town where the museum is located. China Flat is a nearby plateau and natural recreation area, which I definitely did not know until I was doing research for this after the fact. The Willow Creek China Flat Museum is in lovely Willow Creek, California. 
it's cozy. It's got a museum gift shop and obligatory Sasquatch cutout where you can put your face in and take a picture. Let's see if we can get inside. Even though I arrived on an off day, well, in my defense, the schedule I'd been using to plan the trip seemed to think the museum was open the day I visited, but that's neither here nor there, I was still able to get in touch with an employee of the museum. As soon as we arrived, I gave her a call and she promised to arrive in just a few minutes, driving down to open the museum for us, leaving us a bit of time to explore around the outside. A bit of time to explore the outside of the attraction proved to be well needed, and a bit disastrous. Perhaps the most striking feature of the yellow, box-like building is the huge, darkened statue of Bigfoot near the front entrance. At its feet is a metal replica of a plaster cast, allowing a visitor to compare the size of their feet to big feet. And honestly, they didn't seem that big to me. A sign informs us that this track is a copy of a cast made by Albert Hodgson that he found on a sand gravel bar near Bluff Creek in October of 1963. So the famous Bigfoot film was about a mile away from this location. There are several blooming flower bushes that are planted around the side of the museum. Looks like a lot of them are in memoriam. Around the back is a miner's cabin and blacksmith shop. Looks like there might be working tools in the back. But not well attended, obviously. In my snooping around the back of the building, I crossed an invisible threshold and was duly reported. In my exploration, I seem to have set off a, uh, a security alarm snooping around the back. You can hear it in the distance. If I don't get the chance, I would like to apologize for the fine people of the Willow Creek China Flat Museum for uh, potentially involving the police on a sunny Wednesday afternoon. The town was small enough that I attracted some odd looks from passerby as the alarm blared. So I've, of course, set off the alarm at the Bigfoot Museum, and it appears to be off the main road of the town, so cars passing by are kind of pointing out what's going on. In a rather embarrassing and... Uh, comfortably small-town fashion. But soon enough, Terry Kaffner, a volunteer at the museum and also treasurer of the board of the Willow Creek China Flat Museum, arrived to deactivate the alarm and let me, grinning rather sheepishly, into the museum proper. The Willow Creek Museum is a collection of many kinds of artifacts, mostly related to the history of colonial developments in the area. Everything from late 1800s school books to safes and machinery from the Roaring Twenties is on display. There was a strong, I don't know, woodsman bent to the whole thing? A lot of antique rifles, electric saws from the 1940s, and general survival gear sits behind glass, with paper placards explaining what it is and where it's from. This is stuff from the good old days, and Kaffner mentioned that most of the artifacts currently on display were donated from the local community, in an attempt to preserve a vision of the not-so-distant past of Humboldt and Trinity counties. 
It's local history in the most authentic sense, preserved by and for the people who live in the area. Which makes the inclusion of a Bigfoot section interesting not just in the abstract, wow, what a cool thing to have here sense, but in that Bigfoot is a part of this area, in one way or another. A flyer for a town festival called Bigfoot Days, that's days with a Z-E, is thumbtacked to a corkboard by the museum's entrance, and much of the town branded merchandise for sale at the gift shop, like beer cozies and t-shirts, have Bigfoot imagery even when they're not explicitly Bigfoot-themed products. For me, this is evidence that Bigfoot is baked into the town's identity in no small way. Even a Google search of Willow Creek, California for me, has the museum as the first result in both web and image searches. After politely dawdling around the chamber pots and train bells, I moseyed on over to a well-furnished room. The museum's Bigfoot exhibit. It's cleverly not the first thing you notice when you enter the museum, so as to passively encourage visitors to at least consider the non-Bigfoot history of the area. Definite props to whoever set that one up. And after all the items from the previous two rooms, the third room has... Well, I, the mother load might be too strong of a term, but a tremendous collection of cryptozoological evidence. There are areas set up in commemoration of a variety of locations and times for several Bigfoot sightings. There's art and pictures of researchers next to things like plaster casts or, you know, in the middle of their work. A lot of this is in memoriam, kind of like the flowers outside, in memory of Al Hodgson, nicknamed Bigfoot, and his contribution to the Willow Creek China Flat Museum. The center of the room is taken up by casting uh, casts of prints. The exhibit room is basically several booth displays with different themes, combined with low glass cases to display materials. There's a diorama of a Bigfoot standing on a bluff, dozens of pages of scientific reports, and letters from prominent, at least I have to assume they're prominent, not because I know a lot about Bigfoot study, but because the names are cross-referenced and pop up in a lot of places, Bigfoot researchers. And, safely behind glass and labeled with their date of discovery and place of origin, a metric buttload of Bigfoot plaster casts. The Bigfoot footprint is perhaps the second most ubiquitous kind of evidence used in favor of our hairy friend's existence, right after personal accounts. However, for obvious reasons, it's easier to study physical footprints and tracks rather than reconstructed memories. Accompanying the footprint casts is a wealth of information, a laminated article by Dr. Jeffrey Meldrum of Idaho State University titled Evaluation of Alleged Sasquatch Footprints and Their Inferred Functional Morphology lets the casual reader know how weight distribution and compliant gait of Sasquatch footprints can tell us a lot about how their bones evolved, permitting limited insights into their broader lifestyle. This kind of analysis is widespread in the cryptozoological field, and often relies on the input of primate scientists forensic anthropologists, and even some archaeologists and biologists. These experts, and frequently amateurs, will deduce other behaviors of the Sasquatch based on the limited knowledge we have of them, in much the same way as research into early hominids takes place, 
well, that is to say, they use the same techniques, albeit with more limited evidence. One booth is wholly dedicated to the existence of a peculiar creature. A model of an ape-like lower mandible is labeled Gigantopithecus blackie, tooth-breaking parts of three lower jaws. One stall is dedicated to Gigantopithecus blackie, Gigantopithecus blackie, which is a bipedal hominid of gigantic size that lived in China half a million years ago, so the sign says. A sign in this exhibit, next to a cast of the manible discovered, and a plaster reconstruction of the skull, indicates that in 1985 and 1986, Dr. Grover Krantz, Department of Anthropology, Washington State, produced a uh, Washington State University, produced a reconstruction of the skull of a Gigantopithecus. In his words, the jaws and teeth of the skull are firmly based on actual fossils and indicate a hominid primate with affinities more hominid than pongid, ape-like. Erect posture and a 600cc brain size are strongly indicated. The total size of the resulting skull would call for a body more than twice as big as that of a male gorilla. The final product the final product compares favorably with reports of the unverified North American Sasquatch, or Bigfoot. The fossils are somewhere between 500,000 and 1 million years old. This species of recently discovered, and presumed long extinct, ape is of particular interest to many in the cryptozoological community, who believe it to be evidence for a modern Bigfoot. Or, in some cases, believe that not only is it not extinct, but that it is or is related to the species that can now be seen when people report Bigfoot sightings. The species, named after the Canadian paleoanthropologist Davidson Black, who studied human evolution in China, is closely related to the orangutan, but, as aforementioned, is thought to have gone extinct about 300,000 years ago. Comparing tracks from different places and years under glass for inspection, And looking at the names of people who have brought in the casts, there appears to be quite a bit of cross-pollination. A few names show up many times between the scientific papers, articles, and interviews, whether they're introducing each other at conferences or co-authoring articles and a staggering amount of books. Some of these, like Grover and Krantz, Bob Titmus, John Green, not that John Green, Lauren Coleman, and Jeff Meldrum. Lauren Coleman, by the way, will be an important figure to us later on, a continent away in Maine, when we visit his very own attraction. But more on that to come. At the side of the exhibit is a collection of retro Bigfoot merchandise, the only anthropological concession to what's otherwise a pretty archaeologically oriented exhibit. T-shirts from the Willow Creek area with Bigfoot on them are promoted, as is a Harry and the Hendersons figurine and a Bigfoot-featuring Child Life magazine. The inclusion of this display was especially puzzling to me. Some museums I visited, like the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine, are explicitly clear about the cultural anthropology of their exhibits, and will collect artifacts like Bigfoot merchandise and physical samples as part of the same phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon. Others, like Expedition Bigfoot in Blue Ridge, Georgia, veer firmly in the opposite direction, with recreations of Bigfoot encounters 
videos with people who have had experiences, and all manner of purely physical or circumstantial evidence, being far less interested in the cultural impact of Sasquatch fever than advocating for the existence of the creature itself. Maybe this display at the Willow Creek Museum felt like a mandatory inclusion, or someone just wanted to put their Harry and the Hendersons merch on display. I didn't ask. One object of note is a ratty composition notebook near the entrance of the museum. It reads, Bigfoot Memories, and then underneath that, Share your experience with us. Please write your memories. Did you see him? Did you hear him? Did you see his tracks? Please put date and time of day as close as you can remember. Thanks. This is, judging by the penciled number two at the bottom of the label, the second iteration of this particular initiative. Perusing through it are a myriad of accounts, ranging from a sparse few sentences to detailed stories that wouldn't be out of place in a magazine. Some people have just heard grunting at the edges of their rural properties, while some people report meeting face-to-face and even interacting with Bigfoot, providing emails and telephone numbers for follow-up questions about their account. Unlike some of the other stops on this trip, the giant wall-sized map of Expedition Bigfoot comes to mind, there's not an attempt to vet or catalog these accounts that I'm aware of, which, given the sheer volume of them, would be a titanic task. There's a resolution on the wall of the Bigfoot exhibit by the Board of Supervisors of the County of Humboldt, which clarifies a few dates in the museum's history. Though the Willow Creek Museum began in 1988, the Bigfoot exhibit specifically began in 1997, when materials were collected, curated, and the space was cleared for it in the building. The exhibit properly opened in 2000, with the full support of the Board of Supervisors. If you'll indulge me, one part of this resolution is positively hilarious. Quote, Whereas, the museum is a living museum, and the core of preservation for future generations who will find their roots in Willow Creek and the Klamath Trinity Valley, depicting elements of local history, including Native American tribes, mining, logging, farming, and Bigfoot, and dot 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 but it goes on. What a world! As I was to discover, the museum is entirely community-funded, and doesn't get anything from the state of California or the federal government, making this local endorsement more than meaningful. It's essential, and without local support, the museum wouldn't, couldn't, exist in its current form. small amount of effort has been put into a text display titled Highlights in Bigfoot History, and I feel as though I'd be doing the museum a disservice by not listing a few of them here. 1818 was the first report of a hairy bipedal creature in a North American newspaper, the Exeter Watchman in New York, while the first West Coast report is from the 1850s, 
in which a Bigfoot appears to beckon toward a witness, reported in the Works Progress Administration publication Told by the Pioneers. The first picture of a Bigfoot track, necessarily after the popularization of photography in the U.S., was in 1947, while the oldest known plaster cast of a Bigfoot track was from 1958. If you were born in the 30s, you have been alive for the entire popularization of Bigfoot fever. It's that recent. The last date of interest is 1959, listed as Expedition to Find Bigfoot Undertaken, when Tom Slick, a Texas oil inheritor, built a crack team of American cryptozoologists like Ed Patrick, Rene DeHidden, Kirk Johnson, and Bob Titmus to scour hotspots in the Pacific Northwest for Sasquatch activity. Now, a few things to mention. Bob Titmus has contributed immensely to this exhibit, including the oldest plaster cast they have on record, from Del Norte County in 1958. Yeah, the oldest plaster cast. Whether you're a believer or not, this is a piece of history, and a note from Titmus accompanies the cast where it sits. Of note also is that Tom Slick, the oil inheritor, got up to some real nonsense during his adventuring years. Among many other interests befitting a young, ludicrously wealthy man in America at the time, like collecting modern art and advocating for world peace, Slick hopped the globe in search of such quarries as the Loch Ness Monster, the Trinity Alps giant salamander, and even our humble Bigfoot's close cousin, the Yeti of the Himalayas. Buddy-buddy with many celebrities at the time, he was even responsible for smuggling an infamous artifact from Tibet to England with the help of an accomplice, the actor and angel-wing donor Jimmy Stewart. This artifact, the Pangboche Hand, was the subject of a local legend that while meditating in a cave... Lama Sangwa Dorje was approached by a yeti who brought him food and eventually became his disciple. After this yeti's death, the monk brought the creature's hand and scalp back to the Pangboche Monastery, where they served as holy relics and fertility totems. The Pangboche hand was stolen from a Buddhist monastery in 1959, when Jimmy Stewart, allegedly, smuggled it out of the country by hiding it in a suitcase with his wife's lingerie after which it was brought in for testing. The hand is hard to keep track of in the ensuing chaos, and I invite curious listeners to research further what I can only describe as a cup-and-ball game with international ethical repercussions. But ultimately, what solid evidence we do have of the hand proves it is, in fact, human remains, and not some sort of paranormal creature. Anyway, All of this has been a digression, but I thought it was worth mentioning what cryptozoologists can do when they're insanely wealthy and well-connected, and shed a bit of insight into the world of Bigfoot artifacts themselves. After I'd got my fill of the Bigfoot exhibit, I went back to the main desk to speak with the unlocker of doors and current owner of an eerily grotesque rubber Bigfoot mask being taken out of a box, Terry Kaffner. She's been at the museum for nine years and is deeply involved in this unique cultural exhibit. Due to fears about the monetization of this show interfering with how the museum is allowed to make money, Kaffner didn't want to be recorded, 
So the information I'll share here is the product of voice recording after the fact, as well as handwritten notes taken during the interview. After inciting her to come in on a day that the museum was not open and setting off her intruder alarm, I have finally finished an interview with Terry Kaffner. Um, I was unable to be recorded. Um, there is a, some sort of uh, contract where the museum, uh, for whatever reason, she, she did not want to be recorded. Um, I asked her about the makeup of people who come to this attraction. Uh, and she mentioned that people come from all over, literally across the world. Um, even though a lot of the museum is uh, locally donated artifacts, um, obviously the largest attraction is the Bigfoot Room in the back. And people will come from all over the world. Uh, a few thousand visit this town every year just to visit the museum. Um, and there are quite a lot of incidental visitors, people who come to take a picture with the, uh, the Bigfoot and uh, wander in and stay and ask around and visit the gift shop and things like that. Um, and, uh, sorry, I should have mentioned this before, Terry Kaffner has been a volunteer for nine years at this location. Um, and she, for medical reasons, wasn't able to work at her previous job. Um, and has made herself uh, very busy at the at the museum, uh, doing a lot of a lot of work for it. I asked her about uh, what is good about working at the museum, what's bad about working at the museum, um, and she said that given her work as a treasurer for the board, as volunteer, as the person who runs the docent uh, docent activities, it can be too much at times, um, and it does does keep her very busy. But she noted that uh, she meets a lot of very interesting people. Only a few have to be uh, ejected from their premises for whatever reason. I asked about the interactions between the museum and the community. Um, one, uh, given the fact that it is a kind of community-funded organization, it doesn't receive state or federal funding. Um, you know, does that? How, how does that kind of play out? Um, Terry mentioned that a lot of the businesses in the area are out for themselves. And especially given pandemic constraints, um, a lot of businesses are fighting just to stay alive. A few have tried to steal the museum's thunder, or maybe ride its wave is the more apt metaphor. There's a restaurant down the street that was apparently for a time billing itself as the, the, the Bigfoot restaurant, the things of that nature. There were a lot of other issues that happened have happened recently with this particular museum. Uh, There's a bit of bad weather very recently where in the previous fall, the California wildfires forced evacuations of much of the town, uh, including uh, Terry's house. Um, and it made it difficult, you know, obviously with air quality, buildings are closing, it's difficult to stay open. And then that winter, there was a massive snowstorm and uh, just a lot of, uh, you know, closing of highways and things like that made it very difficult to keep the museum open and attract the tourist traffic that it depends on. In terms of pandemic challenges, the museum certainly got hit. They closed for a year post-COVID, though we're still able to arrange private showings for small groups of guests. Beyond that, in a similar vein to the Trees of Mystery, the town occasionally faces evacuation, making it difficult to maintain a consistent schedule. The Willow Creek Museum faces the threat of fire in the summer and fall, and is also positioned to receive road-clogging snow in the winter, both of which are 
obviously not ideal. After speaking with her about the workings of the museum, I finally asked her about her experiences with the supernatural. And she said something that I didn't really expect to hear. She mentioned that, yes, she's seen Bigfoot footprints. Um, In the winter of 1989, she was uh, vacationing and was in a kind of isolated rural area when she was uh, testing whether or not a lake was frozen so that she could go skating on it. Um, And was called over hurriedly um, to discover that there were huge hominid footprints in the snow. Um, Specifically, you know, Bigfoot-sized, and also with ice around the edges. So indented through multiple feet of snow very heavily. Um, And the ice around the edges would indicate that whatever produced these things had heat. Like, for instance, uh, an actual foot and not uh, a pair of stilts or something like that. This incident, and talking with a lot of the people who have spent their lives squatching and who come to visit the museum, has successfully convinced her, turned her into a believer. Um, Although she visited initially to attend Humboldt State, uh, she had found her, and was not a believer at that time, she eventually realized that, well, she actually does believe. The Willow Creek Museum actually owns the original Patterson-Gimlin film footage, and for Kaffner, it's compelling evidence for the existence of Bigfoot. And what about the possibility of faked footage? Having a few friends in show business, Terry related how she had uh, spoken with some costume designers in Hollywood, and the general consensus seems to be that um, the original Bigfoot footage, uh, of which she has a copy of uh, of uh, <laughs> locked in locked in the safe, given its its values, um, indicated that uh, su- making such a costume in the era that it was filmed. Um, for the original Bigfoot sighting video would have been nigh impossible. Um, The way that the muscles flex, the way that the chest seems to sway, uh, make it all very difficult to provide such a a costume. And she mentioned uh, that it being a woman Bigfoot might also have been a a tougher sell given given the culture at the time. Um, another frequent complaint is that there, for all the Bigfoot footprints, we've never seen a Bigfoot skeleton or skull or anything like that. Um, to which she rebuts with, well, you know, you haven't seen a lot of skulls. I've, I've been hiking a lot and I've never seen, for instance, a bear skull, even though they're kind of native to the area. Um, the, the, the difficulty here, you know, well, Mother Nature takes care of her own, is I believe how, how Terry put it. There's a very fast rate of decomposition. Other animals will eat bones. Perhaps Bigfoot burial practices exist that would obscure them from human human sight. Um, she's a firm believer that, given the propensity for smaller Bigfoots to accompany larger ones, this is probably a species, um, not just a single or a handful of uh, of specific creatures. Kafner appears, at least to me to be in the minority of people I encountered during my trip, someone who's been swayed by the evidence. Not that it doesn't happen, but I often feel like it's embarrassing in the United States, in our current moment in time, to admit that you were wrong, 
and you've changed your mind because of a good argument or compelling evidence. The existence of Bigfoot presents an interesting epistemological problem, at least in theory. Where do you draw the line of compelling evidence enough to make a leap of faith? When does the mere lack of support for a position outweigh the possibility or suggestion of the position? This is rapidly spiraling into pseudo-academic stuff, so I'll stop myself here, but maybe belief, or lack thereof, in the supernatural is less about conscious decision-making than a lot of the grand theological arguments might have us believe. Setting a town apart from others around it was a consistent goal of many of the cryptid museums I visited on this trip. Like cryptid, the term Bigfoot itself is probably newer than you think, with the first use attested in 1958 by a columnist for the Humboldt Times, a local newspaper in this area. Though it's worth mentioning the term was probably used by loggers in the months leading up to that first article, because the person who wrote the article got it from the loggers. For those of you keeping track at home, that's two notches in the intersection of mythical creatures and American loggers. And we're far from done with the crossover. The sign for Trinity County limits is just a few minutes south of Willow Creek. We're taking off to Santa Cruz next where I run into another scheduling snag, this time not resolved so easily. And we make a detour to another mystery spot for some compare and contrast, and speak with an experienced tour guide with all the answers. Follow me to the Bay Area in the next installment of My Cryptid Vacation. My Cryptid Vacation is a podcast recorded, edited, and produced by me, Clovis. If you like what I do, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash clovisthefox. The outro music is a cover of In the Woods Somewhere by Hosier. My Cryptid Vacation is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 4.0 international license. <laughs>